I love that last verse that we sang. Now, Lord, I would be yours alone and live so all might see. The strength to follow your commands could never come from me. It's humbling to know that in order to be pleasing to the Lord God, we can't muster up our spiritual strength and be as good as we possibly can and hope to please him, but instead we must come to him humbly with hands open, ready to receive the strength that we need to be pleasing to our our God. And we do that by opening the scripture together. And so we pray that as we study the word, um, as brothers and sisters, that the Lord would encourage us by it, that he would exhort us in the word, that he would strengthen us and make us new in all that he has given. Um, I want you to remember that we handed out a special note sheet last week in addition to your normal note sheet that was kind of a graph or a chart that indicated the different scriptures we're going to be using as we make this journey through the requirements of a biblical elder and look at the the characteristics of a godly man, a godly leader. If you lost that sheet or if you don't have it, um, if you raise your hand, our guys would be happy to bring a a new copy of that to you. But uh, I would recommend you take that sheet, fold it in half, put it in your Bible so that each week you can pull it back out and we can continue to use that as kind of a reference uh, that will point us back to the scriptures that we're studying right now as we have, we've gathered a, an understanding of the different characteristics and traits that God is requiring in those who would serve in the two capacities of his church, the elder and the deacon role. If you were not with us uh, last week, then um, we've begun kind of this, this work through the biblical attributes of a godly leader. And so you're kind of picking up midstream, but uh, it's not too hard to follow along. And you can go back and read the scriptures that are on that secondary sheet to kind of catch up in your own time uh, if, if you need to. Uh, in 2002, Steven Spielberg, very famous director, um, brought to us a memorable film called Catch Me If You Can, in which Leonardo DiCaprio plays a real-life con artist by the name of Frank Abagnale. Frank's true story is extraordinary because during the 1960s, he was able to successfully pose as not only an airline pilot on Pan American Airlines, a guy who literally got into the cockpit and flew from country to country because he was able to fool them into thinking he was a co-pilot. He also uh, posed as a medical doctor in Georgia and practiced medicine for a time in a small clinic and then went on in the state of Louisiana to pose as a lawyer. And though he never went to college for law, he managed to somehow pass the bar exam in Louisiana and practice law in that state. And the most extraordinary thing about all three of the things I just mentioned was he accomplished those things by the age of 19. This is a man who knew how to talk. He was a, he was a con artist extraordinaire. And the movie was about, according to Abagnale, about 80% true about the things that he did. Um, He was a master at convincing people that he was someone that he really was not. And you can imagine the potential harm that it could have done had an unqualified, untrained 19-year-old with an amazingly influential charisma but no background in medicine somehow deceived his way into your operating room. You can imagine how how unnerving it would be to to learn that the co-pilot of the plane that you're flying on had never even been to flight school in his life. Or to think about the fact that the person who's representing you in a court of law had no legal training whatsoever. You wouldn't want a convincing con man to hold any of those positions. You'd need the real thing. I would argue that it is even more important to make sure that the people who lead you in your discipleship, as you seek to be a follower of Jesus Christ and to, and to follow after his precepts and to honor him with your life and your words and your heart, that the people you put in front of you to lead you, the elders and deacons in your life, 
that it's important for them to be authentic, even more so than, a, than an airline pilot or a doctor. By studying four passages of Scripture that guide our selection of elders and deacons as a church, the two biblical offices of the church, we guard ourselves from being wrongly led astray by people who claim to know the Lord but are not following him in a way that would qualify them to teach other people the truth of Scripture or to guide them in a leadership role in the Bride of Christ. So last week, we asked ourselves the fundamental question that we must ask of anyone who desires to lead in the body of Christ. Does this man who wants to be an elder, does this man who desires to be a deacon, does he put his full faith in the Savior? Is he really a believer? So we clarified uh, that a man who is a believer is not just somebody who believes intellectually in the truths of the scripture as they are written in the word. He must trust God with his whole life. To believe on Christ is to live in submission to him, to bring your broken life before him, to lay it at his feet, and to invite him to be the king over all that you are. We talked about how that faith that that individual holds should be an orthodox confession, meaning that it should be the traditional, historical Christian faith that is governed by Scripture. A man cannot just be a spiritual man and, and, and be qualified to, to lead the church. His confession of faith must, must match what, what the church fathers believed, what, what the disciples believed, what Jesus taught. And so his ministry must be ever defined by the Word of God. His faith must also result, as he lives out this confession of faith, it must result in a love for what is good. This man must be interested in the things of Christ. He must have a passion for God's church and for the work that is done there. It must dominate his, his focus and his mind and his thoughts. His, his conversations and his attention should constantly come back to Jesus Christ and the work that he did for us. And we should be careful that those who we put into these roles are not new believers, people who have recently come to faith. They should have a chance to be tested and to be observed so that their faith can show to be true before they have a chance to influence others in a capacity of leadership. So having established that this man is indeed a believer, we have a little bit more work to do because there are many people who are faithful believers, who are wonderful men and women in the Lord, who are loving uh, fathers, who are wonderful Christian people, and yet they are still not quite ready to serve God in a leadership capacity. So we must focus our attention now on one particular aspect of the life of one who would serve as a leader in God's church. How a person handles one aspect of their life can often have a very profound impact on they, how they will handle another portion of their life. Do you remember the parable of the talents in Matthew chapter 25? This extended parable that Jesus spends a lot of time unpacking for his disciples talked about three slaves or stewards who were serving a master who was very abundantly wealthy. And this master desired to go on a trip. He was going to be away from his assets for quite some time. And so he entrusted into these three servants a portion of his wealth. He anticipated that those servants would do whatever they could to try to use that wealth to gain more for their master in his absence. And when he returned from his journey, he found that two of the individuals that he entrusted his wealth to had a great report. They had invested his money wisely and they had earned back interest so that the master's kingdom had expanded. He had, his resources had grown. But the third of the servants was so afraid of his own failure that he put no effort into building his 
master's wealth. He simply buried the talent in the ground, this portion of wealth, buried it so that it would not be stolen or lost. And when the master returns home and asks for a report, he's, he's rejoicing in the work of the first two servants, but he is, he is very disappointed in the third servant who tried to do nothing to gain him an advantage in his absence. You might remember verse 25, 21. Speaking to the first two servants who did a good job of investing and who were faithful to their call, he said, in verse 21, Jesus um, records, his master said to him, well done, good and faithful ser- uh, slave. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. This is, this is what we call representative obedience. These men were given a relatively small task and because they were faithful to it and they excelled in it and because they did not disappoint their master, he was willing to give them greater responsibilities. Faithfulness in the small task pointed to greater responsibilities in the bigger tasks that the master had for his servants. And so we learned this morning that a man's fitness to serve as a leader in the church in this great and broad task is in some ways determined, in part, by a more specific aspect of his personal life. Does this man handle his first ministry, his family, with care? A person who desires to enter into vocational ministry is not embarking on a journey that is radically different than the life of the average believer. A minister in the gospel is not a monk. He does not separate himself apart from society and and live so that he will not be tainted by the wiles of the world off in some mountaintop retreat. In in the same way, he he is not some mystical guru who has some special prayer language or or a direct mystical connection to God that no one else can draw from. Elders and deacons don't have to wear some strange robes or smell like incense so that they stand apart from the crowd. No, New Testament leaders, elders and deacons, are regular people who live regular lives. Because Christian life itself, once you follow Jesus Christ, is mission. All that we are here to do once we have been saved from our sin is to be on mission for Christ and to enjoy the blessings of salvation that he has given to us. Life is mission. And there are several avenues of life that are like microcosms, small snapshots of pastoral ministry. The family is an example of this. Because in many ways, the family is designed to function as a microcosm of the church. Or perhaps it would be more accurate to think about it in the opposite way. Since family was designed by God first, the church is designed to function as a macrocosm a larger scale model of the order, the love, the fellowship, and the worship that is supposed to occur in the households of people who believe. Family is one of the main metaphors that God uses to describe his church, isn't it? We know he speaks of his church as a flock over which he is the faithful and good shepherd. We know he describes the church as his holy nation or as a temple, a living temple of God where the spirit dwells, but he loves to describe the church as his family. He he tells us in Romans chapter 8 that he's adopted us into his family to be his sons and daughters, and now we are full heirs of the inheritance of heaven because of his inclusion of us into his family. The Lord God is a father over us, and so he loves to describe his church as a family. That's why this church is called First Family Church. 
Because we want to understand ourselves as the family of God, the family that works together, that strives together, that supports one another through thick and through thin. So we would be wise to examine how a man who desires to be a leader, how this person approaches the smaller scale example of pastoral ministry that God has entrusted him to handle in his very own home. All three of the passages from the pastoral letters that we're examining over the course of the next few weeks ask the same question in regards to this topic. They ask, is this man the husband of one wife? And they ask that question for very good reason. The term that's used in the Greek language quite literally describes an able leader as a one-woman man, a man whose heart is for one woman and one woman alone. So the man who is married and serves must not have, in a very literal sense, more than one wife. And, and that's not as much of a deal for us today as it was in the culture of Christ and in some of the other cultures in the world that still exist today. We know that marriage is a blessing in and of itself. Proverbs 18.22 says, He who finds a wife finds a good thing and obtains favor from the Lord. Now, uh, if you were to ask Matthew Sherman, who leads our worship, if he is blessed for, to have Tori in his life, I'm sure he would testify and say, Amen. And I hope that you will testify with him today as we gather from three to five at the Divine's house for that reception to, to thank the Lord God for their marriage and to encourage them. Now, I don't have any scriptural evidence, but I'm going to go out on a limb and say that the opposite is also true. That husbands, if you find a godly husband, that that's a blessing from the Lord as well. Again, I can't prove from scripture, but uh, I'm, I'm hoping that for most of you wives who have godly husbands, you would say that your husband is a blessing from the Lord to you. And so marriage in and of itself is a gift. God uses it to combat isolation in the human creation. He doesn't want us to be lonely. He wants us to be near to others. He wants us to have helpful companions that come alongside us in life that can lead us into tremendous joy. But marriage is not just a means of personal blessing. God has dynamic uses for most of the things that he has created. And so marriage, while it is a blessing to us, is also an intricate, complex lesson of God's love for us. It is a physical object lesson by which we learn God's great love for us and we learn to love others with the love that God gives to his people. Marriage, of course, is a covenant. The primary way that God interacts with his people is through covenant. Significant promises of dedicated interrelated fellowships. And so our marriages, in some very key ways, reflect a similar exclusive love that is characteristic of God's covenant love for his church. That's why scripture describes the church as the bride of Christ. That is why Jesus says he has gone to prepare a place for us and when he comes in his second coming he will take us back to the place that he has prepared for us. Because in the Hebrew tradition when a man and a wife were betrothed to be married the husband would then leave the scene. He would go to the place where they would dwell and he would begin to build a home for them. Sometimes it was an extension onto his father's house. Sometimes it was a, very, uh, a home of their very own. But he would not return to consummate the marriage for this wedding festival until the home was built and he was ready to bring her back to live with him. But, so Jesus has said that he has gone to essentially prepare the home for his bride, the church. And when that is ready for us, when the time is right, he will return to the earth to bring his bride back to dwell with him forever. So a man, track with me here, 
A man who takes more than one wife does not have a covenant that accurately reflects the beauty of God's love for his church. Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 5. This is in the, the Ten Commandments, very pa- popular passage of Scripture that you're probably familiar with. It says, You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water underneath the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. God is jealous. Not in the sense that we often use the word jealous in our society. We often say, I'm jealous of something that somebody else has. I wish I had a nice car like you. I wish I could buy a home. I wish that I had a wonderful marriage like you had. That's how we often use the word jealousy. But that's actually more accurately describing envy. God doesn't envy anything because all things belong to him. But God is jealous because jealousy is actually when something rightfully belongs to you and somebody else is treating it like it is theirs. God's church rightfully belongs to him. It is his church. He deserves the love and affection from his church. And it is against the Ten Commandments and God's law and the the very basis of the covenant agreement that he has made with his people for us to worship anything other than God. Our love is to be exclusively for him. So when, when people engage in marriages, and, and historically you saw this in the Bible where sometimes a man would take more than one wife. And there was a number of reasons why that would happen. We're not going to get into all the details why that would, that would occur. That marriage no longer showed a picture of the one-to-one relationship that God wants to have with his church. That there is to be no other worshipful, worshipful love given to Baal or to Buddha or to any other figure, religious or otherwise, that should only go to the Lord God himself. And in the New Testament, Paul feels the same way for a church that he helped to build. The church in Corinth that he, 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 he helped to start and, and to establish and to build up in love was going through a period of time where they were being led astray. Their heart was originally for God. They loved him worshipfully and him alone. But in the absence of Paul the Apostle, as he moved on in mission to start other churches, they had begun to be swayed by the teaching of other persuasive teachers. And now the gospel they were starting to believe in was not the gospel of Jesus, but was some other gospel. And so Paul says in 2 Corinthians 11.2, he says, For I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, For I betrothed you to one husband, so that to Christ I might present you as a pure virgin. See, Paul is picking up on the same sentiment that God has for his church and saying, I'm jealous for you because you're supposed to be set apart for one husband. You are the bride of God. So do not worship anything other than the God who has saved you and made you who you are. When you are faithful to your husband or your wife, You are living out a love that illustrates God's faithful love for his people. And the focused, exclusive love God's people are supposed to have for God. The same is true when you save yourself physically for marriage. When you are not content to engage in in sexual relationships before marriage, you are saying that covenant relationship is important to you as covenant relationship is important to God. God doesn't flirt with people groups. He calls the people to be his and through covenant he binds himself to them and then he loves them for the rest of their lives. 
And that is the way that we ought to focus our love and attention if God calls us to be married. And he doesn't call everybody to, meet, to be married. We're going to talk more about that in a little, a little while. So when you're faithful to your husband or wife, you're living out a love that honors God. A person who would serve as a leader in God's church, therefore, must be someone who loves this way. He cannot be a person with multiple wives because a pers- person with multiple lives is now f- spoiling that image of committed and faithful love. Neither would a man who was married but who is known to stare and long after other women, who is always watching other pretty girls instead of looking at his wife and being content with his wife. A man who put up posters of women and, and was constantly waiting for the swimsuit edition to come in his mail. That's not the kind of man who has a heart that is focused in a loving covenant way. So that kind of a person would not serve well in the capacity of elder or deacon until they were to mature in that area. If the Lord was to change their heart and help them to be more focused, then that might change. But a person who is, who is not satisfied in his wife should not be serving as an elder or a deacon in God's church. A man who struggles with pornography, who views sexual images of a woman other than his own wife, is not qualified to serve in this capacity at church because he is showing a heart divided. Even if it's well hidden and people don't really know about it, his heart is divided. And if he is willing to do what is wrong behind closed doors, then what else will he do in the greater responsibility of leading the church? A man who is outwardly flirtatious with women and who acts in a way that is not necessarily sexual but makes his wife feel unloved or makes other women feel as though he is coming on to them would not be somebody who is eligible to serve as an elder or a deacon in God's church. Many of you are familiar with the name Bill Hybels. There is a massive church in Chicago. 25,000 people are connected to Willow Creek. Bill Hybels is the founding pastor of that church and has served there over the last 40 years. He was planning to retire from pastoral ministry at Willow Creek in October. But on April 10th, he formally resigned his position six months earlier in light of the allegations of about seven women who have come forward and have not claimed that they have had sexual relationships with Bill, but are very concerned because Bill has scheduled one-on-one meetings with them to counsel at his home when no one else was there, that he had given them inappropriate massages and physical touch that was beyond what a man who is married should give to another married woman. He was crossing the boundaries of what is wise and right and holy. So even though Bill had not committed adultery, he saw his actions as inappropriately unwise and resigned so that he wouldn't bring uh, undue pressure to his church. So these are things that we must consider when we talk about a man who desires to serve in the body of Christ. Does he honor the covenant of marriage and love his wife as God loves the church? And I understand that having multiple wives is not much of an issue for our culture in America as it was in in Paul and Timothy's and even more so in, in in the years before that. But we need also to consider the implications of divorce. Because divorce is rampantly common in the society that we live in today. While divorce is not absolutely forbidden in the scripture, divorce is something that God emphatically hates. God cannot stand it when we allow the covenant promises that we make one to another to be broken, especially over trivial things, irreconcilable differences, or different life goals, or 
They're just not the same as they used to be. So often people are allowing themselves to be divorced for reasons that God would never honor. Malachi 2.16 says, For I hate divorce, says the Lord, the God of Israel, and him who covers his garment with wrong, says the Lord of hosts. So take heed to your spirit that you do not deal treacherously. God is a God of promise, and he desires for his people to be a God of promise as well. Breaking the covenant promise of marriage should only be considered as an option in two very specific situations. The scripture is very clear on this. The first situation is in the case of abandonment. And we find this precedence in 1 Corinthians chapter 7. And this chapter of, of Paul's letter to the church in Corinth, he talks about the fact that some who came to the Lord trusted in Jesus after they were already married to somebody who also didn't trust the Lord. Those individuals were asking the question, should I now leave my husband or wife now that I follow Christ? This decision to follow Christ was so radical and so life-changing that some of them were saying, listen, should I stay with this wife or this husband that doesn't belong to the Lord now that I belong to the Lord? And Paul's instruction to them was very telling. He said to them that they, they were to stay with their husband or wife even if the husband or wife wasn't a believer, even if they never believed, that as long as they were willing to stay with this, this person who was a new, new Christian, that they should stay and love them with their heart and perhaps even pray that the Lord God would save their unsaved spouse. Now that, that's huge in light of today's courtroom decisions where people are allowed to divorce for the smallest of things, over money, over philosophy, because she just doesn't look as good as she used to or he's not as successful as he was when we got married. Those are reasons people are getting divorced in our courts today. But even though a, a believer and a non-believer are fundamentally different in soul, God said, if you are already married, if you are already in that relationship, then stay together. You know, if you're not married, then you should seek a believing husband or believing wife. But if you were saved after your marriage, then stick with that covenant. But there is an exception to that. He goes on to talk about in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 15 through 16, what happens if that unbelieving spouse, now that you're a believer, doesn't want you anymore. And so he says in verse 15, Yet if the unbelieving one leaves, let him leave. The brother or the sister is not under bondage in such cases. But God has called us to peace. For how do you know, O wife, whether you will save your husband? Or how do you know, O husband, whether you will save your wife? So in an instance where there's two people who are married and one is following the Lord and the other is not, and the one who is not following the Lord abandons the one who is following the Lord, they are not then bound to follow after that person who has rejected God and rejected them for the rest of their lives, but rather they are to allow that one to go. And Paul says that, they, that, that individual who's been abandoned is now free to remarry, to remarry somebody else who has a faith and who is a believer. So there are instances in, in society today where a couple uh, gets married. Perhaps they were both professing believers. And then over time, one decides to change their mind. No, my profession was fake. I don't really trust the Lord God. And then he runs off with another woman or takes, or, 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 or takes a completely different walk in life and just leaves his wife or she leaves her husband. And that person who's been abandoned in that very rare circumstance is allowed to divorce. The second case where divorce is permissible for a, for a believer is in the case of immorality. Uh, immorality is 
first and foremost adultery, but it can, can expand beyond that. The word that is used here covers a wide variety of sexually based sins that one spouse might commit against another. Matthew 19, 9 says, I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for immorality and marries another woman commits adultery. There is, there is debate about whether a divorced man can serve as an elder or a deacon in a church. And I know there are some churches that I respect that just draw a hard line and say if a man has been divorced in the past, then he cannot serve in the church as an elder or a deacon. He can serve in other ways, but to be a leader in the church, he cannot serve. I, I know other churches that say, uh, that, that say that it's a case-by-case situation. And the reason why I think that is more wise is because there are times when a man is a very godly man and he, wo- he marries a woman who is convincing and confesses faith in Jesus Christ and then finds out down the road that the confession was not real. Sadly, some people will say they believe in Jesus just to get married to a person who believes in Jesus from time to time. And if that individual whose heart has always been for the Lord is then abandoned by the one who he thought was faithful to the Lord as well, or if that spouse commits adultery against him and, and after trying and trying to reconcile that, that, that person refused to stop, commit adultery and, and commit these immor- immoral sins against their spouse, if that person feels the only option he has is divorce, then should he be disqualified from elder service for the rest of his life for something that someone else did? We have to be very careful in prayer in these things and consider each case, case by case, because we don't want to dishonor the Lord and allow somebody into a, a position of leadership that has not honored the covenant, but we also have to realize that the scripture itself leaves two uh, possibilities for divorce to happen without a person being in a state of guilty sin. Now, I do want to mention something to single men here today. I want to put your mind at ease or perhaps depending on your, uh, your position, maybe stress you out a little bit. When the New Testament record declares that an elder or deacon must be a one-woman man, that doesn't mean that you have to be married to serve as a deacon or elder. It's obviously not a command that says you've got to be married to take one of these positions. And here's why. Because the very man who writes these scriptures for us is Paul the Apostle a man who, by all accounts, was never married. He did not commit himself in covenant to an earthly wife. And in that very same chapter, in 1 Corinthians 7, he speaks about how there are advantages to living a single life in this world. That someone who can discipline themselves to not need a romantic relationship or the physical companionship of another human being, if they can give themselves over to the Lord fully and serve as a single person, then that frees them up to not be bound to other responsibilities that they might have to a wife or to children. Those individuals can serve with reckless abandon to the Lord because they are not held back by the conventions of a a normal household. But he also is very clear that marriage is not a hindrance or a burden, that it is a blessing, and that either way you can honor God, whichever way you choose to live, whether that be single or whether that be married. He goes on to say in in um, 1 Corinthians 9, verses 4 through 5, speaking of what is expected of leaders. He says, do we not have the right to eat and drink? What he's saying there is that doesn't an apostle who's come to do the works of mission, doesn't he have a right to, to enjoy the benefits of those who he's ministering to? Shouldn't he get a salary, be paid, and be supported for the work that he is doing? Verse 5, do we not have the right to take along a believing wife as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas. So what he's saying there is, 
Those who serve as apostles have the right to take a wife if they so desire, but it's not a requirement, is it? It's a right. It's not an obligation. He points out that Cephas was one who had a, had a wife, and in fact, we don't have a record of any of the other apostles whether they had a wife or not. So there were some who served as single men and some who served as married men. They have the right but not the obligation. So there are some single men who, who might make fine elders, fine deacons, and they manage their personal household well, but these, these concepts of being a one-woman man only apply in such a case if that person gets married or applies to the way that they treat women in general. A one-woman man who is single should not be flirtatious with women, should not be addicted to pornography, should not be uh, allowing himself to engage in inappropriate touch or contact with women, and of course should not be committing the, the sin of fornication. Marriage, at its very core, is faithfulness lived out in covenant. A man who will not keep his vows to his wife is not to be trusted with a position that will require him to demonstrate continual covenant faithfulness to his God. Hebrews 13, 4 says, Marriage is to be held in honor among all, and the marriage bed is to be undefiled. For fornicators and adulterers, God will judge. This man's responsibilities extend beyond the covenant of marriage, of course. So we cannot just look at his interactions with his wife. We also have to ask ourselves, does this man manage his own household well? That's what for Titus 1.6, um, 1 Timothy 3, 4-5, what these, these verses are communicating to us. It goes beyond just marriage. It also extends into the household. 1 Timothy 3, 4-5 says, A man must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. For if someone does not know how to manage his own household, how will he care for God's church? Every house is a structured organization on a small scale. And organizations demand management. This passage indicates that according to God's plan, the management of the household falls upon the shoulders of the husband of that household. Does this man who wants to serve as a leader, provide for the basic needs of his wife and his children. A man who's not willing to sacrifice his time and his energy to meet the needs of those under his care is falling short of the responsibilities he has embraced as a married man and a father of children. Now that doesn't mean that that, that husband necessarily does all the administrative organizational management of the house that he pays all the bills and sets the budget, that he coordinates the schedules, processes the taxes. It also doesn't mean that he's only, the only breadwinner in the house necessarily. We see godly examples of women who contribute financially to their households, Proverbs chapter 31, and of many of the women who served after Christ. So the man is not exclusively responsible for these things. He might be poorly gifted in some of those areas. Some men are just really bad with numbers. His wife might be exceptional in those areas. It might be decided that the wife would be the best one suited to take care of the bills or the aspects of the family management that suit her skills. But ultimately, the completion of those tasks is not her responsibility, it is his responsibility. So if the husband of the house designates the wife to do the taxes and she doesn't do them properly, it is the man's fault. It is not the woman's fault. If the man of the house designates his wife to pay the bills, they agree together that that's what she's going to do and she fails to pay the bills. It doesn't fall in God's eyes on her. It falls on him because he is the steward of the household. The responsibility stops at the husband. 
But we would be falling short of our understanding of this requirement if we figured that the household management only had to do with money and bills and keeping the lights on and keeping a roof over the heads of the children and food in their bellies. It's far greater than that. The household's finances and provisions are important, but they are not the most important aspect of a man's management of his household. Since a man holds faithfully to the mystery of the gospel, he's become, he has come to understand that his true bread is not bread. His true bread is the word of God. And he's come to understand that the water that gives him life is not the water that comes out of the faucet in the kitchen. It's the water of Jesus Christ. He is the living water of life. And so a man who manages his household does more than pay the mortgage. He also shepherds his wife and his kids by feeding them spiritually. This is the ideal that a man would be the first shepherd for his own household. He's demonstrated that competency in the difficult task of spiritually leading the family that God has put under his care and provision before he serves as a leader in God's church. It would not be discerning to put a man who cannot spiritually guide his own family in charge of being an elder or a deacon who is to look after the family members of other households. So a good candidate for an elder or deacon service would be aware of his children's spiritual state. He would know not just his kids' names and which sports they like to play and, and what their favorite food was. He would take the time to know where they stand with Christ. Do your children trust Jesus yet? Have they put their faith and hope in Christ? If not, what steps are being taken to help move them in that direction? Do you know if your kids are totally disinterested in Jesus? Do you know if they are somewhat curious but with lots of questions? Do you know if they are very close to trusting in the Lord God. Each of those different hearts that I just described needs a specific kind of ministry to them, a ministry that gets them a little bit closer, a little bit nearer to this God that we hope one day will capture their heart and cause them to have faith. This man should be working regularly to sanctify his wife. That means to help her live in a pure way that honors the God that has saved her. He is doing that by sharing scripture with her by sitting down and reading the word with his wife. He is doing that by leading her according to the commands of God's scripture. He's doing that by praying side by side with her on their knees together. He's doing that by helping her identify areas in her life where she needs to grow. And he's doing that by leading her in forgiveness, by admitting when he fails to her and reminding her that he needs to go to Christ for strength to be the husband that she needs so she won't idolize him, but will instead Christ, see it Christ at work in him when he does a good job of being a husband. Too often, when a family gets ready to go to church, the last anchor that gets pulled off of the ocean floor before that ship sails for the, the parking lot of church is dad. He's the last one you gotta unplug from his seat, and that shouldn't be the case. In a, in a household where a man is the shepherd for his family, he should be the one that's waking the kids up on time, that's motivating the family. Let's go. We gotta go to church today because we're gonna worship our God and we're gonna be involved and we're gonna be blessed by being there and letting the Lord teach us and guide us. The godly man who desires to be a good steward of his family will not be content just to provide the money they need, but will also desire to stand up and be an example of faithfulness to his kids. Is he leading his own small congregation in family prayer? In times where they gather around the table and, and read the word together, is he giving chances for his family to worship in song to the Lord God? If he is not faithful in the first things, 
How can we expect him to be faithful in the second and third things? It's like a, a parallel of the, the parable of the talents where a little bit was entrusted in these stewards, these slaves. And because they were faithful in that small area, that master then desired to give them more responsibility and a broader influence. But friends, we gotta, we gotta remind ourselves here too that these are not just the responsibilities of an elder or a deacon, are they? They are the responsibilities of a married Christian man. Learning about these requirements should stir up in the hearts of every Christian man who has grown lax in his understanding of what it means to provide for his family, a new fire to take that role seriously and to learn anew to lead his family in this way. Maybe you've never led anybody in a prayer. Maybe you've never cracked the, the scripture yourself. You've always let somebody else teach you. That doesn't mean it's too late for you to begin to lead your family by example. It may mean that you need resources, that you need coaching from one of your elders or a deacon in your church who can help you learn to be a better shepherd to your family. But if you have children, if you have a wife, then you should embrace this role that God has given to you to be their first pastor, to shepherd them in truth and to take that responsibility seriously. It's not enough for your kids to think that God is a good guy or that he's fun to be around. Your kids need to know that daddy is a man of God. If you're struggling with these things and you need instruction, I would highly recommend a book by a pastor uh, by the name of Vody Bauckham Jr. I don't know if you've heard of Vody, but uh, he wrote a book called Family Shepherds, Calling and Equipping Men to Lead Their Homes. And it's extremely, extremely great resource for those who desire to be better fathers and be better shepherds in their house. In fact, if you want to be a better dad, I will buy that book for you so that you can read it if, if you want some instruction on how to see which scriptures guide your steps and direct your path when it comes to leading your children in the faith and, and sanctifying your wife in the truth. Well, Titus 1.6 is one of the uh, passages we're really relying on today as we consider these requirements for a godly husband and a godly man. And it presents an interesting interpretive challenge for us. Does a man who serves as an elder or deacon, does his children need to be Christians? Do they need to be saved? We have to do some work in the original languages because Titus 1.6 seems to indicate that perhaps they do. Let's look at first at 1 Timothy 3.4. 1 Timothy 3.4 is speaking of elders and it says that he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. Does that mean that he has to have saved kids, kids that are dedicated to Jesus Christ? Not necessarily. It says that his job is to keep his children submissive. That means they are in order, that they are following his guidance and direction, that he is able to direct them. Now, I love that it says there, and this is very important, it says that with all dignity, he is to keep his children in, submissive, in a submissive state. That means that he is not to rule his house with an iron fist. This submissiveness is not carte blanche for dad to be a dictator in the home. Rather, he is to lead his family with dignity. It doesn't take terror to make people do what is right and to keep order in the home. It takes love. It takes truth. It takes consistency. It takes patience. It takes example. So a man who lives with dignity should be able to keep his children in relative submission. That means they are following his instructions. They're not running around crazy and out of control all the time. They are kids, right? So they're not 100% submissive. Most adults are not but they are relatively able to hear instruction and follow it 
and they respect the leadership of mom and dad and their family. 1 Timothy 3.12, which is directed at deacons, says essentially the same thing, that they are called to be able to manage their children and their own households well. So that refers to keeping order again. It doesn't necessarily mean those kids have to be saved. But then we get to Titus 1.6. And Titus 1.6 says, If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers, and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. That makes it seem almost very clear here, that the children have got to be believers, followers after Christ. But that is not necessarily the case. When we look at the original language that these words were written in, in the Greek, the word that is there for believers is the word pista. And it is an adjective that can be faithfully and responsibly translated in two different ways. It can be translated as believers, or it can be translated as faithful. A believer is somebody who's put their hope and trust in Jesus Christ. But somebody who is faithful might just be somebody who is able to follow in directions and instructions and is willing to follow after their parents' leadership. There is a difference between those two terms. And how we determine which one is best is by looking at the context of these passages. The context, context has to determine the most accurate meaning. Paul gives us examples. After he talks about this, these children who are believers, who are pistas, he gives us two examples of their faithfulness or their belief that they have. He says that they are not open to the charge of debauchery. What does that mean? Debauchery means unashamed, sinful behavior. Kind of a rebellious, rampant heart. So those who are children of a man who is elder qualified will not be running around committing sin without any shame, without any reserve. They are also kept from insubordination. That means a heart of open rebelliousness towards those who've been placed in authority over them. So a parent who has faithful children have children who are not running around in rampant sin and they are willing to follow the directions of the father that God has given to them. That doesn't necessarily mean that they are believers. It means that they are faithful to their dad. So when we look at Titus 1.6, it doesn't mean that to serve as an elder or deacon, all your kids must be saved. And that makes perfect sense because, friends, no one, no human being controls the faith or the faithlessness of another man. We share the gospel. We show God's love to our children. We sow seeds of faith in the soil of their hearts. But the one and only power that is able to make a child trust in God is the Holy Spirit. A deacon or an elder if it was a requirement for their children to be saved, you would have to demand of them what they cannot accomplish on their own power. You would ask them to do what it is impossible for them to do. Only the Holy Spirit can make a child believe. Since salvation is not something we can accomplish by our own personal faithfulness or by our own obedience, we can't require that deacons and elders have saved children. So many broken-hearted mothers and fathers who would give their own lives to see their children trust in Jesus Christ have done all that they could do in their power to present Jesus to them, and yet the kids have still said no. Is that a knock on their faithfulness, on mom and dad? Absolutely not. That is evidence that the heart of each man must decide for themselves whether they will say yes or no to Jesus Christ. And there have been many unknowing believers 
who without even realizing it, shamed these mothers and fathers by making them feel like, oh, if you'd only preach the gospel a little bit more to your kids, or if only you'd sent them to a Christian school, or maybe if you had homeschooled them, they'd be believers today. How many unnecessarily broken hearts have shed tears over their lost children? Friends, we have no control over our child's salvation. What we do have control over is our faithfulness to the calling that God has put into our lives. Can I save my little boys and my little girl? I can't, but I can preach the gospel to them. And I can continually point them to the fact that the blessings that come to our household come from him. And I can correct them according to God's word and teach them that God is faithful and he wants what is best for them. That is why he has given them these laws and these rules because he wants to keep them from the damaging sin that is natural to their heart. And I can show them again and again and again that when I am filled with the Spirit, I can do things beyond what I could do uh, do if I was walking apart from Christ. That's all I can do. Continually show my kids Christ. Teach the Scripture to them. Give them every chance to say yes to Jesus. I uh, met with a friend a couple weeks ago. She's struggling with some addiction issues. And she's got some massive depression going on in her life. There's some fragmentation in her family. And I sat and spoke with her about the things that she was going through. And my heart broke for this woman. I could see the shattered mess that was her life. And she didn't have answers. She was desperate for counsel. How do I make this better? How do I not hurt like I hurt right now? And as much as I would love to snap my fingers and say, this is the equation. This is what you need to do to make your life better. I know that's not the way the world works. And I also know that that woman doesn't trust in Jesus Christ as her personal Lord and Savior. And so my conversation kept doubling back to the fact that she did not yet have the solution to her struggles, but the solution is available to her. That if she would trust in Jesus Christ, and even if these, these struggles and trials did not resolve themselves, she would know true peace. She would know true acceptance and forgiveness in Jesus if she would only put her faith in him. And I preached the gospel to her and brought her to scripture and I showed from my testimony how God had blessed my life because of my closeness to the Lord and my trust in Jesus Christ. And at the end of that conversation, she thanked me for that time. She did not trust Jesus Christ as her Lord. Did I fail her? Did I fall short for my friend? I don't think so. I would have rejoiced with great rejoicing as she gave her life to Christ that day. And I'm not giving up hope that she will. But I did what a steward is called to do. I took every opportunity to point her to Christ. And I prayed hard that the Holy Spirit would soften that hardened heart. And it hasn't happened yet. But my job is not to save an individual. My job is to bring them to the Jesus who saves them. If you're a dad, head of the household, that's your job too. By the way, The term for children that Paul uses in this passage in Titus 1 is a technical term uh, that is pronounced tekton in the, or technon in the Greek language. This kind of a child is one who is dependent on somebody greater for their uh, survival. And so a technon is not Bobby or Julie who's grown up and is now 28 and is living in the world and doing their own thing. When we look at a man's family, his household, and how it reflects on his ability or his eligibility to serve as an elder or deacon, it has nothing to do with those adult children who have left your care and are now living independent from you. 
There are faithful men serving as elders and deacons in churches across this, this globe who did everything they could to bless their children while they were with them, and then the children left the house and they went off the deep end. Their choices cannot disqualify dad. Simply because this grown adult is on their own doing what they want to do, that doesn't keep this man from serving as a faithful elder in God's church. This technon refers to those who are under the guidance and the provision of a mother or father. And so when a person grows to be old enough to support themselves and to live outside of the home, they are no longer technically a part of the household, though they will all be, always be a part of the family. So this is, this is what God has called us to do. He's called us to consider the fact that when we are faithful in one small area, he might show us responsibility and expand our influence into broader areas. Don't get the impression that elder service is somehow more important than service in the family. There is a reason why God makes the family the first ministry for, for, for people because the family is critically important to the health of the church. And if we are not if we're not doing a good and faithful job in the home, then we cannot hope to be effective in other areas of the church. Good ministry starts at home. But he who handles that first ministry well may then qualify to work in greater capacity, in a broader capacity in the church, influencing not only his own household, but the households of all that he would shepherd and pray for. Today we focused on the specifics of a candidate's family, and next week as we get back into the scripture, friends, we're going to focus even further and we're going to look at the heart of the individual who desires to serve and ask that question what motivates this man why does he want to serve beyond the household why is he desiring to take on the role and the responsibilities of elder or deacon are his motives pure does he desire to do it from a right heart that is what we will look at next week when we convene together again Let's bow for a moment in prayer and uh, our worship team is going to make their way up to the front. We're going to sing another song before we go, but let's thank the Lord for what he has taught us. You are the faithful and the true witness. You are the line of Judah and the lamb who was slain and we praise you, God, for providing all that we need in your word. And Lord, we admit that there are times when we don't know what we need because we are too negligent to read it. We have not yet opened the book to see what you desire of us. And so God, I pray that as we go through this series, Lord, where we're learning the requirements of a godly leader, that you would help us to understand that there are specific things that you desire to be in order in the heart of a man before he can stand up and do this kind of a leadership. I pray, God, for the leaders of our church that we would be humble. I pray that you would help us to seek you, God. I pray that you would help each one of us understand that these are not just requirements for elders or deacons but these are patterns that every godly individual should seek to live out in their own faithfulness, especially in the ministries that you give us in our households. We love you, Lord. We praise you for every blessing you give and for every trial by which you prove to us that you are more than enough to get us through and to help us to overcome. Help us to rejoice today as we leave this place. We love you and we thank you for the mission that we're on. In Jesus' name, amen.